Welcome to Helium Podcast. Today, we're doing two things with this episode, and they're both about bringing in more voices. We realize that there are not just us, there's tons of podcasts out there run by PhDs and that are for PhDs and example careers that people might be going into, uh, including finance, entrepreneurship, science, all this stuff. And so we realized there's a lot more perspectives that we could gain. And we reached out to them to ask for their opinions on some particular aspects of academia. Having talked to experienced professors and people running their own groups, we realize that the onboarding process is really critical to people's success in establishing their research culture, whether or not that be at the department level or in the lab level uh, type experience. And so what we thought was we'd go around to these eight different podcasts that we're grateful for them joining the show and sending in their thoughts on this, on this, getting their ideas on how to onboard people into their group uh, how they do it themselves, experiences they've had personally with onboarding that have worked out well. And so this episode is really for anybody who wants to glean best practices for onboarding. So this basically means you can go through the episode and find things that resonate with you and put it into practice as you're building your own teams for research and innovation. So Christine, you know, Thinking about this topic, I know you've been working on teams, science teams for years, and you do this uh, with Team Helium. What are your thoughts on onboarding? Gosh, I bet both of us have so many, but I guess if it boils down to even one small concept, it would just be that is the time to turn up your empathy real high. Is just imagine this person coming in and you know, they might be coming in for a five-year PhD, uh, you know, one to two-year postdoc, or they could be coming into the group for a number of different time periods with different goals. And what's it feel like? How, what have they left behind? They've got all this uncertainty. And what would make them um, just really know that they did the right thing? They joined a team of people that care about them, where, you know, they don't just need a list of uh, the analytical equipment they can access and a how-to of, uh, you know, not breaking that stuff. It's like they need to know that there are some people here that care about them, that are glad they came. And, um, and, and so just kind of, I guess, understanding the emotional intelligence required to have you know, capitalize on that moment of um, building a culture of a, a bigger group that does all the stuff that you want to accomplish. Yeah, the onboarding is a moment that will pass. That will you o- you only get one chance to make this first. It, it, maybe it's not a first impression, but just a first day, a first week, and people remember that stuff. They will remember that stuff forever. And you'll actually realize that when you when you listen to these eight other podcasters that we're, we're grateful again for them joining this episode. And so without further delay, uh, we want to get to the eight guests that we have on this show. Daniel and Rob from The Contingent Professor, Emily Roberts from The Personal Finance for PhDs, Mark Reed from Fast Track Impact, Julie Gould from Working Scientists as part of the Nature Careers podcast, Chris Cloney from Grad Blogger podcast, Katie Linder from Research in Action, Tina Person from PhD Career Stories, and Bonnie Stachowiak from Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks to them all for joining this episode. And here we go. I'm Daniel. I'm Rob. 
And we're uh, the two people that run the Contingent Professor podcast. Um, actually, Rob just shows up and talks on the microphone, and, you know, I do the rest. But uh, Oh, and you do it so well. <laughs> so we, we were asked by uh, Helium Podcast to uh, just uh, talk a little bit about onboarding in the lab or even in the departments. And uh, this is probably the third or fourth attempt we've tried to make this happen. But Or should we call it onboarding in an old lab prep room? <laughs> <laughs> with 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 a very thin wall, so you yes, hear what the other labs uh, yes. are doing. Yes. Well, you know, in um, when we onboard in in uh, the labs I've worked in, the we a big qualifying factor was was attitude, and that was the hardest thing to test for because some people can present really well. Yep, but if you're a lot of stuff I did involved field work and some lab work, but also being in the field with people. And you really need to know how people can handle adversity and are they going to come, how are they going to deal with the mosquitoes and. Right. And I I do think, I do think that there, you know, you definitely have different, you, you have to try and somehow get a gauge for what kind of PI or what kind of lab person, like the lab leader there is, because there are some lab leaders that just expect you to go and just start doing stuff. You know, there's other ones that want you to go through and follow a process so I think having other people within the lab kind of tell you how the, how the stuff works is well, helpful. It's it's figuring out what the lab culture was. Yes, like, the lab that's that's the word. Lab yeah, culture, like right? The there. culture for the environment that that I preferred was was I didn't mind if people didn't know stuff, but I wanted them to be incompetent in what they did know. Right. So I did not want to have to teach people how to write a sentence. Right. And that's a that, that's a really good point because the biggest thing is there are people that tried to come onto a lab in order to get experience versus actually being interested in the project. So I, so I think the biggest thing is making sure that you're going in, understanding what the culture is and knowing that you actually do want to be there working on that project. Uh, you, you're going to, you're going to have, there's going to be an expectation that you're buying in to what the, you know, what the, what the goals and the, the objectives of that lab is. So if they're stated clearly, that that's a help. Right. But but I think you're going to have two sets of rules. One is the explicit ones that are stated, and the other ones are the implicit ones that are how things really work. And they might not be stated at all. Right. But they might be something like you go out for coffee or... Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, and some organizations do a better job of that stuff. So like, you know, when I, when I started working at the, the NASA lab, when I was doing grad school, you know, I showed up there and what it was part of the graduate student researchers program. That program was really good at getting me into understanding NASA culture. But when I got to the lab, it really was, you know, walking around, making sure not to call anybody doctor or professor, because that's not, that wasn't the culture there. Everybody went on a first name basis there and pretty much was, you know, this is the lab. You know, if you need to order stuff, talk to this person and don't go into any room that says lasers or radiation <laughs> without proper protection. And, uh, and that was pretty much it. Like, and I, so, I mean, it was a, it was a very, it was a kind of a culture where you're like, you kind of have to figure this out now, you know? I think, th- and that's the case where that's what I think of as the hurdle. Like, like you, you went over the hurdle and you got into the system right. and then, then once you're in, you're in on right. your own. And there are other labs and other organizations where it's very hierarchical and structural. That's like correct. you have, you're in at level one and then you work way to level two and then level right. three and, and then you can start. Okay. Then you can get your name on publications because you're doing this or that. Or, right. Right. 
That was the other thing too, is, you know, there were, at least in the culture there was, if you were affiliated even a little bit in the project, you were going to have your name on that publication. So it's something to under, to try to understand too, is, you know, what is that, you know, are you going to be expected to be the last person on that list? The first person, uh, how much work you contributed and what's the expectations for putting other people's names on? And how much do you, how much do you jump in when, um, when something needs to be done and, and, or do you wait to be asked? That's right. And then as far as the onboarding, when it came to at the university level, so say you're done in the PhD and you're, you're now entering into say your first academic position or something like that. That's also very different, right? Because I came on as a contingent professor. So as a contingent faculty member, and I kind of just said, Hey, I'm here. I have these projects I'm interested in and I can teach these courses would you take a flyer on me? And so and, was, and you don't get a lab set up or, no, or something no, you like you get that. nothing like that. You pretty much make everything on your own happen. Um, and you hope that you uh, just joined with a lab, with, uh, with a department culture that fosters that kind of almost like entrepreneurial spirit. You so know, it kind of depends on what kind of institution you're at, because if you're at an R1 institution, right. Then that quite, big research institution that has grad students, typically post-docs. they'll use the star, the radial star theory of, of, um, of production in which there'll be one big name professor, let's right. say researcher, and then they will have their postdocs with them and and their doctoral students and then more master's students and they'll have an occasional dip into an undergrad with a with maybe one large lecture class. But that might be about it. And undergrads might be some techs working in the lab or right. something like that. The other thing that I, that I, I but, will say, I think, in addition to that, is also know that, for example, the faculty member that I joined when I got my PhD, he knew he was leaving the university in a couple of years, but didn't tell me about it. So he it, that was a really interesting dynamic because he was, he was leaving, he was, he was moving on to become dean of a different University and yeah. I didn't and I didn't know at a different university and I didn't know that and and so picking up on things like right. when, when somebody does some distancing because they're getting ready to leave but right. as soon as somebody says that they're leaving they've just disenfranchised themselves and right. and right. undercut their authority over their grad students and every, That's right. everybody That's else. Right. So, but it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. The person, I think the person that their whole goal was to get me to work at NASA <laughs> and then stay and stay involved in that way, knowing that they were going to move on from, from the university. So I, I had a very different perspective, I think on, cause it was someone that was like, it was the end of their career, the end of their, like their academic career, um, moving on to an administrative career. Yeah. A lot more labs now are like, are, are unlike R1, where there's one big lab with with some big grants that are funding things and right. all phalanx of folks, but they're either individual solo operations with one or two, or they're collaborative labs yes. where people yep. might come together like a makerspace kind of a thing. Right. And if you if you're working at say a undergrad primarily undergraduate public institution, you should expect to have limited resources, and you are going to be doing a lot of the projects yourself. You are basically your own grad students, your own postdoc, your your own photocopier. You know, you do a lot of things on your own that you that you might not that you might not realize that that's that's just expected of you because of the culture that you've joined. You know, and it's just the resource. Are not nearly as available in those situations. You can still do great work. It's just going to take a lot more time to do that work. Yeah, you need to have a lab journal and write everything in that. Yes, from, you have to be very deliberate in, in, in taking yeah. notes and writing that stuff for yourself. All right. So uh, as far as the podcast goes, uh, we started it about three years ago. 
Um, I was kind of annoyed. <laughs> uh, I loved my NASA job and uh, decided to move to a different location uh, for family reasons that didn't have any connection with the uh, with the with the government lab. So I came on as a contingent faculty member, thinking foolishly thinking that I could just do what I was doing before without you know with, without having to worry about all of the other interesting details of academia. Yeah. Amused at that attitude of Daniel's, I quick I realized that um, from my perspective, we're all contingent. And yes. The, the minute you start thinking of yourself as permanent and, and yes. a fixture, you're you're probably losing effectiveness. And, and even you know, and even with the financial exigency that's happened across the country, you know, faculty members that are tenured for faculty members have been retrenched. They, they have been removed, you know, from the university, you know, for financial reasons. And that makes us all the more contingent, which is kind of the, the thesis of the show. Right. Tenure is nothing more than a presumption that you're doing your job. It doesn't protect you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It assumes that you're not a terrible person, I guess. Oh, no. If you... Oh, no, no. Often <laughs> you need to be a terrible person. Okay, oh. right. <laughs> That's a whole nother. Oh, that's a whole other thing. Tenure. That's, yeah. that's a whole other thing. So, all right. Well, with that, um, I hope this was enough material. And uh, uh, if you're interested in listening more, we do a lot of uh, joking around for mo- most of the podcast anyways. Hey, this is Emily Roberts from Personal Finance for PhDs. And thanks so much for the opportunity to come on the Helium podcast and add my experiences. I have a PhD in biomedical engineering, which I finished up at Duke University in 2014. I know you're looking for best practices in how to welcome new students. And I didn't have the best experience when I started grad school. So here are a few things that I wish had happened. One, when you have meetings with the entering cohort of graduate students at like the departmental level, for example, don't assume that they attended the visit weekend the previous spring. So I know my department did something uh, during orientation week that was specific to all of us who are starting in that department, which is great. But as I didn't attend the visit weekend uh, the previous spring, I kind of felt like I was a step behind. Like what was being presented was it was kind of like I was supposed to already know a lot of information about the program that hadn't been communicated to me, for instance, in writing. Um, and I believe it was because, you know, I had missed that particular visit week in the previous spring. I visited at a different time. So keep that in mind when you're planning your agenda that maybe some people didn't attend that visit weekend or they just don't recall among all the visit weekends they were attending what was specific to your university that they happened to end up in. Two, please have office space already set aside for the people joining your group. I know this may seem like a small thing and not all graduate students are provided with office space, but in my department, everyone was supposed to um, have office space provided by their PIs because we all directly joined a group when we entered graduate school. And my PI had a fairly large group and was all the office space was already filled and it took him about a semester to um, secure the additional office space he needed. So during my first semester of graduate school, while I was, you know, attending classes and getting started in the lab and trying to meet everybody, I didn't have like a home base to leave my stuff and do my homework in and, you know, where I could be found by other people who needed to meet with me. 
So instead of having a dedicated space of my own, I would spend time in the common areas in my building or over in the library or um, actually in a different building where my then boyfriend, now husband had two offices. So I'd be in all these other spaces instead of in my own dedicated space. And that actually, I think, is a really important part of of welcoming a new student is saying, here is the place that we have set aside for you. Third, please do communicate generally to your group when a new person joins. Now, this is one where I don't remember exactly what happened for me in particular, but this was just a pattern that I noticed over the time that I was in uh, my PI's group. In general, there was no communication around new people who would start showing up. So me as someone, you know, just in the lab, I would observe, oh, there's a new person who's at lab meeting today or has been at lab meeting for a few weeks or, oh, there's a new person who's sitting in, you know, that other office over there associated with our group. And it wouldn't be clear at all to me um, who this person was or, or why they were there if they were someone who was joining the group or someone who was just visiting for a shorter period of time. And we would have new people coming in pretty frequently, not just new grad students, but new postdocs, new visiting fellows, um, med students who were doing their year of research, uh, collaborators. Now, of course, if this was near the start of the school year, I could figure out, oh, this person may be a new graduate student and you know, go and introduce myself for that reason. Or of course, if they were sitting in my office, I would introduce myself. But again, our lab was rather large and a little bit dispersed, so it would have been really helpful whenever someone did join, if I knew that I could rely on my PI to make some kind of announcement either over email or in lab meeting or through having a separate you know, meeting to welcome the new person. Well, thanks for listening. And I hope you are able to get some best practices out of my experiences. Again, I'm Emily Roberts and my podcast name is Personal Finance for PhDs. That's also the name of my business. My website is pfforphds.com. And I talk about personal finance for early career PhDs, uh, postdocs, grad students, postdocs, and PhDs in their first or so real jobs. I talk about how to make the most of your money, even if you don't make that much money. My podcast is interview-based, so of course you'll hear my perspective as a personal finance expert, but also the perspectives of people just like you. So I hope that you will check it out. Hello, I'm Mark Reed, and I'm a professor of socio-technical innovation at Newcastle University in the UK. Uh, I also lead a spin-out company based on my research on research impact called Fast Track Impact. The most recent job I applied for was my chair at Newcastle University. And um, apart from the expectation setting, which was frankly fairly scary, and I don't entirely recommend uh, for you to do to your colleagues, uh, unless you want to scare them, of course, uh, the, the thing that really stuck out for me from our induction programme was the fact that we were given dedicated time with a trainer in a group setting, but with a trainer to think about our vision for the role, what we wanted to achieve. Uh, and I think that this is quite rare. I think very often you get a new role and you've got a whole lot of tasks and you just hit the ground running and get your head down. Uh, and for me as an academic, it's really, it's really important to give people the time and the space and the permission to think 
uh, and to really ask, well, okay, you're coming into this world. What do you want to achieve? What is the potential you want to reach? And how can we adapt and mould this role and how we work together to enable you to achieve all of that stuff? So you're highly motivated and you're achieving everything, not just the narrow range of things that was on that job advert. Great. For for me, uh, this is 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 this was the chance for me to think about how I might be able to transform where I was at at my career into what I described to the trainer at the time as becoming a thought leader. And my question was, how can I move beyond where I'm at to to really change how people think at scale? This is not just about big ideas for me. It's about coming up with 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 ideas that help people, whether that's in terms of research impact and achieving change that people care about at scale, or most importantly for me, this was about becoming a mentor to other academics at scale so that I could enable them to achieve impact by changing the way that they thought as well. And uh, in that process, the idea for the Fast Track Impact podcast was born. Uh, my attempt to mentor impact at scale, so mentor academics at scale, so that they can achieve research impact and become more academically resilient. The two themes that you'll hear if you listened to to my podcast. You can find more at fasttrackimpact.com forward slash podcast. Uh, And if you listen to that, you'll hear some of the other bits of advice that I give to new people joining my group. So I've got seven postdocs and two um, PhD students in my group at the moment. And for me, the key thing is that I value your ideas more than the amount of time you spend working. Uh, Good ideas, great work, does not necessarily correlate with huge amounts of hard work or time put in. Uh, So uh, for me, this is uh, about recognising when you have achieved those great ideas. And if you did that in less time than I expected, then I don't expect you to go the second and the third mile and just push in time because you did it early. I expect you to go and get some thinking time, go and maybe relax or do something creative while you are thinking. Uh, or go and do a project of your own that you're passionate about uh, linked to your work, um, that uh, paper you want to write from your PhD, which you still never got around to, or whatever it is. Uh, and so when things do get really busy, you're refreshed and you're motivated and you're ready to go. But even when things do get really busy, I think it's really important to set clear expectations for the amount of work that people do and, uh, and and not working crazy hours. And I think you need to set that from uh, the top uh, saying, yeah, so this is me. I'm leading this research group and this is the amount of hours that I do. So for me, I work on average 37 hours a week. I don't work weekends. And I'm stating explicitly that no matter how much you might think I work, Uh, I do not expect you to work any more than me. Um, And even if you do work more than that, I would suggest uh, that you're not expecting people to work weekends or evenings. And so uh, I tell people, you know, if you want to, that's fine, but I don't expect you to do that. And if you email me at the weekend, don't expect to get a reply. So I think it's important to make those expectations explicit and model them as best as you can and keep revisiting that, especially when you see emails regularly coming in at crazy hours. Do you really need to do that? Uh, Could we have a discussion about your time management? Are there things that you could do to rank back? Uh, uh, Have you got too much on your plate? Uh, The second thing for me, the final thing really, is is that 
I, I want to, to set a set of norms and values that says that, you know what, we're all equals in this. And yet I might have prof in front of my name, I might have a few more years under my belt, and there might be a bunch of indicators that impress you, but uh, I'm just me, I'm just a person. Uh, I've got my own skills, but also my own weaknesses and, and limitations, just like you. Uh, and so for me to be able to learn, I need to know when um, my behavior uh, has not met expectations, when I've said something that was offensive or that you didn't understand, um, and, and, and come to me and talk to me and tell me what that feels like uh, and let me learn from that so that I can raise my game. And of course, I'll do the same for you. And it's important that we have that open dialogue. And it's about being open and honest and creating regular opportunities to provide both positive and constructive feedback. So you're getting that praise, you're realizing when things are going well, and I'm making that explicit. Uh, but we're also both learning from our mistakes. Uh, and that is about me learning as well. And I think there is an implicit power dynamic, which means that you have to very explicitly say, look, I'm looking for feedback. I want to be able to improve my behavior and uh, raise my game. So tell me uh, this stuff. Ultimately, the, the message is that we are just at different stages of our career. Uh, we are both equals in this and we can learn from each other. And when we have that kind of attitude and we enter this research project as equals, then we will do our best thinking and we will do our best work. And when you have that academic freedom as a team member, then actually you will be more creative, more productive, happier. And actually as a team, we will produce more and enjoy what we produce. Hi, I'm Julie Gould. I'm the producer and presenter of Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast, which is all about careers in science. Now, the Helium team have asked me to introduce myself a little bit. So the backstory is I have an undergraduate physics master's from Cardiff University. And following that, after deciding not to go into academia and pursue a PhD, I went on to do a master's in science communication instead at Imperial College London. So I started working at Nature in January 2014 when I became the Nature Jobs editor. So that was really an opportunity for me to relaunch the Nature Jobs podcast, as it was known at the time. Now, it wasn't long after I started where I actually went on maternity leave. And after that, instead of returning to full-time work, I became a freelance science journalist, uh, as well as working on various written pieces about science and careers in science. I actually started working with the careers department again and relaunched the Nature Careers podcast, which is now called Working Scientist, as I've already mentioned. Now, one of the things they asked me to talk about for this particular section was teamwork. Now, throughout my time, which granted hasn't been all that long, but I have been on various different teams. At school, I was part of a team that had to start a business. Then I also, as a teenager, was on various international swimming teams, so representing Great Britain, England and Wales at the World Schools Games, at the European Championships, at European Youth Olympic events and cherry on top the Commonwealth Games in 2006 in Melbourne in Australia. And as well as that, when I went to university to do physics, I was also part of teams to work on various lab projects. 
And during my time in science communication at university, I worked in teams to create various pieces of media. Those are all very different types of teams. And what I learned from those teams is that the best kind of team is a supportive team. So people who are there to support the overall goal of what the team is trying to achieve, but also there to support you as an individual member and the goals that you have. And this actually is advice that I've heard over and over again from the hundreds of scientific academics and industry professionals that I've spoken to over the years for this podcast. And building a successful team from a science lab point of view isn't easy, but there are some things that you can do that could help you and to make your team members feel at home. So one of the first things that people have recommended is to create a lab handbook. So this is a a general document that you could give to everyone who joins your team that outlines your goals for the lab, where everything lives, how things work, what your ethics are, how you expect people to work together and so forth. And this would then go hand in hand with something called a wiki, which is an online version of the lab book plus links to various pieces of information about the lab, how different pieces of kit work, uh, definitions of various things and so forth. Now the other thing that is crucial is for you to be open and honest about yourself and that will allow you to create a very supportive environment where your team members feel that they could approach you without feeling nervous in any way. Now, one way to do that is to have regular group meetings, but also to have individual meetings with your team members and to make sure that everybody's needs are met as they change throughout their time with you in your team. Now, one thing that I'm often asked is how do you analyze the success of your team if you are a team leader? And this is tricky because everybody's definition of success is different. So the first thing to do is to define your definition of success. And one way to define a success of a team is that you reach your common goal, but also that the individual members can reach their goals as well. Now, a lot of scientists use something called an individual development plan. So these individual development plans allow your team members to think about and record what their goals are. And if you get them to review these plans, every few months, you'll see how they change over time. Now you then have the option to meet with your team members and to review these individual development plans. And you'll have a chance to see how well you're able to support those goals and help your team member achieve them. Now, the final thing that I am always told is to remember that people and teams are not static. They are ever-changing and your way of leading them should change to fit the needs of the time. Now, a little bit more information about the Working Scientist podcast. It is a podcast with special focus towards early career researchers, specifically in the scientific disciplines. It's a series-style podcast, so we have four series a year, each on a specific theme and each with six episodes. Now, these themes can be discipline-specific, for example, on careers in physics, but they can also be broader. So we've had a series on funding and we've had a series on technology and we'll have upcoming series on the challenges of PhDs and on science communication. So this podcast, really what it does is it complements and adds to the other careers content that's produced by Nature Careers. We know that early career researchers are very busy and don't always have time to read some of the feature articles that are published. So this podcast is another way that you can engage with the content on a very personal level. So if you want to find out more about Nature Careers, you can go to nature.com forward slash careers. And from there, you'll find the podcast as well. 
And if you have any questions, please feel free to get in touch. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. My name is Dr. Chris Cloney. I have an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, and I got my PhD in chemical engineering, both at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Since graduating, I created an independent research company in my field, which is industrial safety, and also help other academics build profitable online businesses at grabblogger.com. So this question from Matt and his, his team at Team Helium is really a great one about orientation, about getting started in your department or your group when you first start graduate school, and asking for kind of comments and thoughts on how people can get started. So I want to share one really important conversation that saved me pretty much $10,000 per year through much of my graduate degree. And it's something I recommend that most people do when they start a master's program or a PhD program. That is sit down and discuss money with your supervisor. It's kind of scary because most of us don't know how to talk about money. Most of us don't do that at home, but it's a really important conversation. And so to do that, I want to recommend three questions that you should answer or three questions that you should ask rather. Um, And this is good for both the graduate student and the supervisor, just to lock in what's actually going to happen while you're doing your graduate degree. So question number one, how secure is your funding? So there's some level of funding that's being provided. How, you know, how confident is that? What grant is that coming from? Is it coming from a grant? How does it disappear? Where does it go if it disappears? Kind of tied to that is question number two, how long is that funding secure for? So are you agreeing to finish your PhD by 2025 in June? And is the funding guaranteed until that point? That's a really important question to ask. And the third, and this is a big question, what happens if you get a big scholarship? Uh, in my case, I did ask this question and, and we came to agreement that we would not drop the funding level that was provided by my stipends, which I know happens to a lot of graduate students. You get this big scholarship, covers a lot of your funds, and then basically all that just comes right out the back door um, as, as the, uh, you know, as the funding goes away on the other side for your stipends. So just having this and putting that out front when I did end up getting a big scholarship, actually adding quite a bit more stipend added to my, my salary as a graduate student as I went through. So that'd be my recommendation on how to get started. Um, sit down and have a money discussion with your supervisor. Three important questions you can answer, and there's pro- probably some more, but is how secure is your funding? How long is it secure for? And what happens if you get a big scholarship? So I hope that helps. Uh, really excited to see other masters and PhD students and other research labs and laboratories and those people bring on new students. And I hope this, this comment and question can help, uh, help those move through. So my podcast is gradblogger.com is at gradblogger.com. It's the gradblogger podcast. We're helping academics change the world through building profitable online businesses. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at gradblogger. I really look forward to seeing you there. Hi there. My name is Dr. Katie Linder, and I am currently the research director for Oregon State University eCampus. I've come a pretty long way from my original discipline, which is women and gender studies, which is what I got my master's and my PhD in. And now I research primarily online teaching and learning. And um, when it came to starting this research unit, I actually launched it. Um, And so being kind of welcomed into this research unit was a really unique experience. Um, You can learn more about the research we do here at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash research. And we've certainly grown over time. We've been around for about four years. And when I first started out, I had a lot of autonomy and room for creativity, which I think is really 
unique. I had the option of creating all different kinds of projects, responding to gaps that I saw in the field of online teaching and learning. And I was able to build a team and a strategic plan of research questions and different ways that we might want to disseminate our research over time. We also had the really creative opportunity to work with our marketing department here at eCampus to help us create kind of really strong dissemination strategies for our research that included things like partnering with national organizations to release webinars, um, presenting at conferences, doing some print and digital media to release different things that we were creating and learning about. And um, I learned so much in a very short period of time about how we can leverage things like social media to really get the word out about the research that we're doing. One of the things that was really wonderful about my experience of starting with Oregon State eCampus is to have that freedom and that creativity to really build something new that was going to be practical, that was really going to help people in the field to respond to very specific needs and concerns. And also a big part of our mission became working with research literacy, helping people to really understand research methods and design in the field of online teaching and learning, where we have a lot of practitioners that don't necessarily have terminal degrees. So they aren't trained necessarily in academic research, but they're expected to look at data and understand all of these academic studies. So we focused a lot on research literacy and also building community among researchers in online teaching and learning. Now, one of the ways that we did that was our podcast. It's called Research in Action, and you can learn more about it at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash podcast. Um, it's available wherever you get your podcast. Um, and this was a show that we created to have kind of an interview-based platform where we could talk with researchers from all over the world about topics and issues related to research in higher education. So I am so fortunate that I get to interview all kinds of people in tons of different disciplines using every methodology that you can think of. I'm learning so much through the process, but also we get to share that with our listeners. So we release a 30-minute, roughly, episode every Monday, and this has been going on now for over three years. We just had our three-year anniversary, um, so I have interviewed over 150 people for the show, and we have downloads from all over the world. Um, we have such a wonderful listener base for Research in Action. So um, I hope you can check it out. You're welcome to find it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all the major places, um, and of course, I hope you'll check out our website as well, where we include show notes, transcripts for every episode, and also instructor guides for how you might be able to incorporate our episodes into your classrooms if you're teaching about anything related to research or methodology. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, my name is uh, Tina Persand, and I'm an independent career and leadership coach in my own company, Passage to Pro. I'm also a happy founder, as I call it, of the podcast PhD Career Stories. I have a scientific background as an assistant professor in chemistry and biology from Lund University, where I also 15 years ago wanted to pursue an academic career. My scientific focus was on in vitro selection on RNA aptamase, selected against the protein responsible for rose setting and thus causing brain malaria. I also investigated the biological and synthesizing metal-containing nucleosides and their binding affinity on RNA molecules. Focus was on platinum and ruthenium metal complexes. But after three years of studies and actually having a small group of PhD students and postdocs, I understood that the academic roadmap was not my future. 
I was doing too much of things I did not like to do, such as writing applications and funding. And uh, basically, I was not very keen on the political game that was played in the institutions. Actually, I guess in the end, it took up to more than 50% of my time to write all those applications. So I decided to quit. I'm a person I prefer to talk than write. I know that now. But now I will throw you back to my experience when I started my PhD studies. I did that in the beginning of the 90s, so it's pretty many years ago. My experience from Lund University, I decided to take a PhD in organic chemistry and my focus was to perform antiviral and anti-cancer nucleoside molecules. They had to work very hard and though I still remember how much I struggled because I do, I also do remember that my PhD studies was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. My professor, though, he was not very involved. I was in a very big group, uh, so I had to take charge of my own work, which I gladly did. However, after two years, I actually realised I had to figure out things on my own. I had to set up new projects, figure out new project, projects, so I could wrap up my articles and finalising my thesis. If I had not been so result-oriented and if I had not taken so much charge as I did, there would have been no thesis today. Basically, I did not always do what, my, what I was told to do or what my supervisor told me to do. And I'm smiling when I think of it because uh, that is part of my learning process and later in life I have realised it's part of my personality. I started my PhD studies, as I said, in a very big group, uh, and I was lucky. Uh, we were four or five PhD students starting at the same time. We had all that together performed our bachelor studies and done the programs together, so we knew each other very well. And I would say that was a fantastic support uh, because we could help each other through the PhD studies. I was lucky. I think I was very, very lucky. So I felt very, very welcomed. And as I said, I had fun. We organised parties, we shared activities on our spare time. And we, what I still can remember, we had fun. We had many stories to be told. But remember, I will not tell you some of these stories. They're too crazy to be told. And it probably would take over two hours. And honestly, I'm not sure you want to know all the tricks that we played at the department. Is that though anything I would have done differently? Yes, I would have started earlier to figure out who I am. It took me another 20 years to realise who I am. I am not aimed for academia. I know that now. I am an innovator and I love to run my own business. Today, after many years working as a recruiter and headhunter, I'm back as an assistant professor more than ever. I have my team of PhD students and I have a work style of an assistant professor and I would put myself as an entrepreneurial scientist. And as, uh, and as I mentioned in the beginning here, I'm a happy founder of the podcast PhD Career Stories. After several years in the recruitment business, I moved my focus to the coaching arena. 
particular focus on career and leadership coaching of young research inside academia. It's both researchers wanting to leave or transition from academia to industry or researchers needing to help. They actually need help to stay inside academia. That's usually what I call leadership coaching. I realize that I need, and there's a huge need of role models. And what could be better than a podcast? Researchers sharing their career stories from both success and failure point of view. They will serve as inspiration to other researchers and as such help them in their careers. So far, we have produced over 70 stories with tips and tricks and soon we celebrate three years anniversary. The team around me is 10 to 12 fantastic researchers, all of them working on a volunteering basis. So finally, if you feel you need inspiration in your career, learn how a researcher performs its transition from the lab to become a recruiter or nailing a regulatory affair job, becoming a project manager, or despite all struggling, deciding to stay in academia, listen to our podcast PhD career stories. It's all there for you. So finally, thanks for listening and thanks for inviting me, Matt. This is Tina Persing speaking from a very warm and sunny Sweden. Hello, my name is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I'm the director of the Institute for Faculty Development at Vanguard University. I'm also an associate professor of business and management. As I reflect back on how I was welcomed into my department, the academic unit, what was wonderful was I had a woman who was an accounting professor there in the business department who really just looked out for me in terms of from a cultural standpoint. So there are all these cultural clues that are really hard to see when you're very new in an organization. And I felt like she helped me see times when I really should engage, but especially those times that would be less helpful <laughs> to try to engage and to kind of sit back and take more in and, and have more of a listening approach. I'm very grateful for her that I feel like she helped me really be able to fit more quickly in the culture and not step into anything too deeply that I couldn't get myself back out of early in my years of teaching and being a part of our institution. And I would love to share a little bit about teaching in higher ed. It has been the passion for my life now for the last five years. Since June of 2015, there have been over a million downloads of these podcast episodes, starting from the first seven, I think, episodes were just my husband and I trying to have, they always tell you when you start a podcast to have some in the queue. And so it started out that way and has really grown since then. It has transformed my teaching, my leadership, and even my relationships in with my family and, and being a parent. It's really been a remarkable experience. And it's designed for people who really care about teaching and want to really hone both the art and science of facilitating learning. We look at both aspects of it. There's a lot of evidence-based practices we can explore and then sometimes it's a little more complicated than what research might be able to encompass. And we could view it also as a form of art and craft. And we also talk about productivity, which I see as ways, things that we can do that help us then be more present for that teaching and for those relationships in our lives. People can find Teaching in Higher Ed just by pulling out your favorite podcast app and searching for Teaching in Higher Ed. And if you have never listened to a podcast before, I guess that would be impossible because you're listening to a podcast right now. <laughs> but 
<laughs> but you could also find it at teachinginhighered.com and, and get yourself over that way or share it with your colleagues. Thanks so much for listening a little bit about how I was welcomed into my own department. And I look forward to having some of you consider coming over and having a listen to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, everyone, for listening to episode 32 of Helium Podcast. Really appreciate it. The show notes, as usual, can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 32. My two big takeaways from that episode were when you onboard someone, give them space to think when they first join your group. Think about the things that they, how they want to fill the position, how the things that they want to do with the job. Giving people space to think not only as you're onboarding, but as they're continuing in your group is super important. The second thing is helping them understand the culture of the group. So it's often disorienting to join a new group. So it's important to not only just talk about the things that you can break, how to operate this, that, or the other thing, but rather to talk about how the group operates. What are the implicit and explicit rules of the group? That's a great way to help someone out on their first day or their first week, how they're onboarding into your group. Christine and I want to thank again, Daniel and Rob from The Contingent Professor, Emily Roberts from Personal Finance for PhDs, Mark Reed from Fast Track Impact, Julie Gould from Working Scientist, Chris Cloney from Grablogger, Katie Linder from Research in Action, and Tina Person from PhD Career Stories, and last but not least, Bonnie Stahoviak from Teaching in Higher Ed for joining this episode and sharing their wisdom about onboarding people into your team or lab group. Thanks to you all. As always, the the music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake, who can be found at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by me, Matt Hotze, and produced by Christine Ogilvie-Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Until next time... We hope that nothing stands in your way from creating the research team of your dreams.